What is up, Fellowship College? Yeah, you'll take a seat. Hey, give it up for the worship band real quick. They are absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for serving, y'all. It's an incredible time of worship. Uh, hey, if I haven't got to meet you yet, my name is Jacob Bookout, and I serve on the college staff here with Fellowship College. It has been a privilege to come on staff. Uh, it's been an awesome last semester, and we are excited to kick things off this semester and keep it rolling. If this is your first year in Northwest Arkansas, like you're from out of state, you're here for school, welcome to the back half of winter. It's insane here. January is filled with bitter cold, wind, ice, which we'll probably experience this week, sometimes snow. It'll get back up to 65, 70. Wind will get crazy. It'll do that for two months. And by the time March hits, you'll be ready for the spring weather. And then March will bring another freak snowstorm. And that's what you get to expect here in Northwest Arkansas. If I haven't got to meet you, I would absolutely love to come up afterwards, uh, introduce yourself. I want to go through the room and meet as many people as possible. This is the first time that I get to do this, but by way of y'all getting to know me just a little bit, especially if I haven't got to meet you, uh, one of the most important people in my life is this girl right here. Her name is Caitlin. She goes by KT. And as of December, she's my fiance. So I'm very excited to introduce her at the beginning of anything that I ever do. Uh, KT is amazing. She's wonderful. And one of my favorite things about her is that she has a deep love for literature. Now, I grew up, I, I love stories. I grew up reading, uh, but she takes it to a whole nother level. She studied it in undergrad. Uh, she loves novels. She loves the romantic. She, she loves poetry. Uh, and that also bleeds into her just loving movies. She just loves stories, which we both love movies. We have like our little list going of movies uh, and one of my favorite things about literature and movies and just stories in general is whenever the author of one of those things weaves together a common thread throughout maybe just one story, one book, one movie, but takes it to a whole nother level whenever it's multiple books, multiple movies, multiple stories. Some examples of this that we might be familiar with in just pop culture are Christopher Nolan movies. Yes, somebody likes Christopher Nolan over there. Yes. Uh, these are some of my favorite movies, and it's because he's an incredible director, but the common thread that he weaves through a lot of his movies is the manipulation of time. And so if you've ever seen Inception, it's about people diving into like multiple layers of dreams and time runs differently in each of these layers. If you've seen Tenet, which is his most recent one, it's about time moving in two different directions and then eventually it meets in the middle. Interstellar, can't even explain exactly what's going on in time. Dunkirk is an incredible use of the necessity uh, to use time as effectively as possible. And that one's a true story, which is really cool. But he's so good at this in narratives. And it's not just in stories, it's in music as well. Kendrick Lamar is an incredible storyteller. He writes in, in these really poetic forms in his rap that's mostly talking about the complexities of life. A lot of the times it's the suffering of life, and then specifically from his point of view, growing up in Compton. If you've ever listened to his music, and especially whole albums, he weaves that thread perfectly throughout an album, and even multiple albums. And of course, there's literature, there is novels. Uh, are there any Jane Austen fans in the room? Raise it high and pride. Now, are there, are there any guys raising their hands? No. Okay, yeah, those are just girls. Jane Austen is 
one of the best novelists ever. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with Jane Austen, you got Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, uh, a bunch of other names that's something and something else. And the, the thread that she weaves through her stories is mostly romance. And it's specific complexities about romance, especially Pride and Prejudice. Uh, now, I have to admit, I've never read any of Jane Austen's novels, but I have seen two movies about the novels, Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice. And I discovered upon watching Pride and Prejudice recently that there's like 17 movies that have been made of it, and most of them suck. But if anybody is a Pride and Prejudice fan and a true Jane Austen fan, you know that the best Pride and Prejudice movie is the Keira Knightley version, right? Yes. I mean, whenever she first touches Mr. Darcy's hand and he's like, he's got the... Yes, it is incredible storytelling. I love stories, and that's one of the reasons that I love the scriptures. It is such an intricately, how do you say that word? Intricately? Intricately woven narrative with, a, with multiple threads, but one we're going to look at tonight that goes through so many books all the way through the whole Bible. And we're going to hone in on one of those today by looking at the life of Aaron. The life of Aaron is going to show us a common thread that will unlock a major reason as to why Aaron are one of these unsung heroes that we wanted to take a look at this semester. We're going to look at three scenes in Aaron's life, and we're going to see this common thread throughout the whole thing. And it's that God wants to be with his people. God wants to be with his people. And so we're going to look at these three scenes in Aaron's life. It's Aaron's leadership, Aaron's low, and Aaron's legacy, if that helps you break this up and remember it, because we're going to cover, like Josh did last week, a lot of scripture. And so buckle in, because it's going to be awesome. Let's dive right into Aaron's leadership and see how God wants to be with his people through this. So whenever we find Aaron in the Old Testament, we're dropping into an even bigger narrative that's happening that's called the Exodus. And so basically what's going on is Israel, which is God's people that he's uniquely partnered with so that the whole world would know about him so that he could be with all people, finds themselves in captivity in Egypt. They've lived there for hundreds of years, and now the king of Egypt does not want them there anymore. Uh, he sees them as this growing army uh, not army, but people that could turn into an army. It's a threat. But he also doesn't want to let them go because they're kind of his workforce. They build everything for him. And so in an effort to mitigate the population growth and Israel getting too big for Egypt to handle, uh, he has a decree go out that all of the male baby boys of Israel be killed. One is saved specifically, whose name you might be familiar with, which is Moses. Moses ends up through a series of events getting raised up in Pharaoh's house, which is slightly ironic because he was supposed to die at the hands of Pharaoh. He is raised as an Egyptian, but then kills an Egyptian out of anger because he was abusing one of his fellow Israelites. He flees into the wilderness, a bunch of stuff happens, and eventually he ends up in front of a burning bush, which is a story maybe some of you are familiar with. And that bush is the presence of Yahweh the one true God. And God comes to Moses and says, Moses, you are gonna be the instrument, the person by which I partner with to bring my people out of slavery in Egypt and into my presence because I want to be with my people. Moses doesn't love the idea. He's very scared. He doesn't wanna do it. Five times he says, God, somebody else. And this is where we find Aaron 
Look with me in Exodus chapter four. We're gonna start there if you wanna flip open in your Bibles, then we're gonna be flying through some more passages. But in Exodus chapter four, starting in verse 13, we read this. Moses said this to God, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, what about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know that he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth and I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak for the people for you and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. Intro, Aaron. Aaron is Moses's older brother by three years. And right off the bat, I want us to understand that Moses and Aaron are about 80 and 83 years old. So when you're imagining this, they're old dudes. And so imagine an old dude arguing with God about how he doesn't want to go. And his brother shows up. Immediately, the author says, Aaron the Levite, which is cluing us into this thread that we're going to track all night. Aaron the Levite, specifically, we're going to figure out that the Levites become the priests of God's people to him. They serve as a, an intermediary. Basically, what happens is you have God's people, and then you have somebody who represents the people standing before God, and then God speaks to that intermediary, to that priest like Moses and Aaron, and then they relay all that information to the people. That right off the bat becomes Aaron's role, and it actually becomes his role because his little brother is unwilling to do what God is wanting him to do. Uh, and so Aaron steps alongside Moses to become an intermediary right into the story that many of us are very familiar with, which is the Exodus. Aaron and Moses, they march into Egypt and they tell Pharaoh to, thank you, I, come on guys, I only knew, let my people go. God wants them to go speak to Pharaoh and say, hey, let Israel, my people, who I want to be with, go out of Egypt to come and worship me. Pharaoh denies them multiple times, uh, and we get into the story of the Exodus. You may be familiar with the 10 plagues. Each time, Aaron, or each time Pharaoh says, no, absolutely not, I'm not letting the people go, Aaron alongside Moses enact, it's basically spiritual warfare against the gods of Egypt in the form of these plagues. They turn the Nile River, which is the source of life, uh, into blood, uh, for the Egyptians. They sent all kinds of locusts and frogs and other swarming things and all the cattle die and, and these horrible things begin to happen to Egypt because of Pharaoh's hardness of heart and his evil against God's people to the point where all of a sudden God says, hey, all the firstborn in Egypt are gonna die unless you follow the plan that I have for that not to happen, which is the Passover. You take a perfect lamb, and you kill it, and then paint the blood over the doorpost. And if you do that, you will, God will know they are being faithful to him. Aaron is in the middle of all of this. And eventually, he gets to help lead Israel out of Egypt because Pharaoh's own son dies, and he can't take it anymore. And so they leave Egypt, and they go into the wilderness. Aaron is right in the middle of the scene of Israel coming to the Red Sea, and then God parting the Red Sea for them to walk through it. He's right in the middle of the scene of three months of walking through the desert, miraculous food and water uh, being given to them by God at the hands of Aaron and Moses. Uh, a nation comes against them, and Aaron is there with Moses, helping them prevail uh, by relying on God. And eventually, they wind up at this place called Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai 
is the place where God wants to bring his people into his presence because God wants to be with his people. And so he's talking with Moses and Aaron and they get the people ready. Uh, it said that they are consecrated. They're made holy and set apart. And God wants them to become a kingdom of priests. Notice the Levites are the priests, but God wants all people to be in his direct presence. And so for hundreds of years, they have been captured in Egypt. They've been completely oppressed. They've been outside the presence of God. They get delivered through this miraculous series of events and plagues and going through the sea and all this stuff to wander through the desert for months to end up at this mountain where God says, finally, you can come into my presence, which they can see at the top of the mountain. And whenever God invites them up to the top of the mountain, they reject him. It says that they took their stand against God at the foot of the mountain, and they did not come into his presence because they were scared of his presence. God wants to be with his people, and yet they said no. And this is the time where we get introduced to what a lot of us know as the Ten Commandments. God still wants to be with his people, but because the people have denied him, he has to come up with regulations as to how they can be in his presence, even though they've rebelled against him, and even though a lot of them don't necessarily want to be in his presence. And so he gives them the Ten Commandments and these other regulations and instructions for this tent that they're supposed to build, for his presence to dwell in. And then we learn this about Aaron and his role. Exodus 29, God says, I will consecrate or make holy the tent of meeting and the altar and consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God, and they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt, that I might dwell with them. I am the Lord their God. Do you hear God's desire in that? He makes Aaron and his sons priests so that they can bring the people into God's presence because he wants to be their God, even though they rejected him. And so he, he makes this happen the people agree, yes, we agree to living this way of life so that we can be in your presence. Moses goes back in to the presence of God and we're left at the bottom of Sinai. Aaron, the Levite, now a priest bringing people into the presence of God. Aaron's role is to be this model human who walks closely with God, who understands his holiness and who in every way brings the people into his presence. Okay, that's a lot. Why don't you just reflect for a second what happened in, in all this narrative of the story, which is a very long time and a lot of scripture that I jumped over. There's a people for hundreds of years who were enslaved. They've heard of this promise that if you were here last week, you heard Josh talk about given to one of their ancestors about how they would be a huge nation and God's blessing would be on them and they'd bless all the nations around them. But they don't see it happening. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, seemingly, God delivers them in these crazy ways. And now they're standing there and they've rejected God, but he keeps pursuing him. What great lengths God went to be with his people. Can you think of any times in your life or maybe the course of your whole life, how God has pursued you in that way or anybody else? I have a friend who went to the University of Arkansas and whenever he came here, yeah, he's from the Midwest and uh, he was this big guy. Yeah, who, who's from the Midwest right here? I just heard a big cheer. Yes, over there. Love that. Uh, but he was this big dude, long hair. Obviously, look, he's from, the, he's from Nebraska. His nickname was actually Nebraska. 
and uh, he lived in Humphreys, I believe. Uh, yeah, Humphrey, Hump Dump. We love Hump Dump. And um, he comes in, and uh, he kind of had like a semi-rough upbringing, but he came to the U of A, and he ends up living uh, by himself for a while in Humphreys. So it's just him hanging out, and uh, he's just doing the college thing. He's it's like early 2000s. He's probably wearing like Red Hot Chili Peppers t-shirt, just kind of like hitting some rock music in there, getting really high all the time, drinking a lot, just hanging out, you know, being happy-go-lucky. Somebody comes into his life, into Futural. This guy's not even in college anymore. Walks in, knocks on his door, says, hey man, what's up? Introduces himself. Nebraska's sitting on the couch like, who is this guy? Like, he's not in college anymore. What's he doing in here? The guy sits down with him. They start hanging out. Guy shares the gospel with him, like out of nowhere. Nebraska's like, yeah, thanks, but I'm good. Moves along. Through the course of that year, this guy comes back around, builds a relationship with Nebraska, and eventually befriends him. Nebraska gets interested in the things of God, and he starts showing up to things like this, like, like a college service. Still high and drunk, but he'll show up to it just to hang out with friends. And eventually, God gripped his heart. He said, I want you to be with me. I want you to be one of my people. And through a series of events where he really hit rock bottom, eventually he gave way and said, okay, God, I want to be with you. He goes through college, meets his wife, and eventually is so convinced of this message of God wanting to be with his people that he realized there's a lot of people in the world that don't have anybody like an Aaron like a priest, like somebody who's going to bring them into God's presence. And so he gives up his plans for post-college, and he moves overseas. And he moves to a volcanic island where he had to purchase a boat in case it blows up. And he lives with a people group who they're currently in the process of getting the scriptures created in their language. A big Midwestern guy from Nebraska who lived in Humphreys Hall, not only becomes one of God's people, but now there's a tribe on a volcanic island in the South Pacific who is also becoming God's people. How great of links does God go to be with his people? Have you seen that happen in your life? God wants to be with his people, and we see that in Aaron's leadership. We continue in the story, and we now see this scene in Aaron's life of Aaron's low. So they're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. Aaron and his sons, they are now this order of priests. They are supposed to represent the people before God, bring them into his presence. And Aaron goes back, or Moses goes back up onto the mountain to get more instruction from God, leaves Aaron in charge as the spiritual leader of the people. And we see this in Exodus 32. When the people, when Israel saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, well, take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off the earrings and brought them to Aaron. And he took all that they had handed him and made them into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioned with a tool. And they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Aaron just became a priest. The people just got delivered out of Egypt. They just rejected the presence of God that they can still see at the bottom of the mountain. 
and they freak out. They don't trust God. And they say, Moses is probably gone. Help us worship in another way. And so Aaron, instead of trusting God, tries to appease the people. And he builds a way of worshiping God, which was strictly forbidden, like just a couple chapters before, in order to appease the people. He's supposed to be bringing them into God's presence. And then it gets out of hand. When Aaron saw this, that he, when Aaron saw this, he built the alt, an altar in front of the calf. And so you have the golden calf, and then he builds an altar in front of it, and he's trying to correct the mistake. And he says, tomorrow there'll be a festival for the Lord, for Yahweh. So the next day, people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterward, when they sat down to eat and drink, they got up to indulge in revelry. And so what Aaron has now done is provided a way for people to worship an idol statue that's supposed to represent God. But then they get out of hand and they just start worshiping the statue as a different God. And then he tries to fix it and he builds this altar so that they can like actually worship God, not the idol. And then they just end up getting into their normal Egyptian ways again. Aaron just became priest when this happens, just became priest. Then we see this happen. Moses shows back up, little brother, talking to God. And he says to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you've led them into such a great sin? Don't, and then Aaron says, don't be angry, my Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. And as for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. And so I told them, whoever has any jewelry, take it off. And they gave me this gold and I threw it into the fire and then out popped this calf. You hear what he's doing? He's like, he's just deflecting. He's like, these people, they're sinful. You know that. And they started freaking out because you were up there for so long. Why were you up there for so long? And then they started asking me all this stuff. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. And then all of a sudden this idol just appeared. He's supposed to be bringing them into God's presence and yet he does the exact opposite. He has them break these just written laws as to how his, God's people could dwell with him. So why is this a big deal? One, because Aaron as a priest is supposed to be the model. He is supposed to recognize God's holiness and provide the way that God laid out for the people to come back into his presence. He's also supposed to be this model human that, that trusts God, acts as this intermediary, but he does the exact opposite. He does not walk in step with God and he does not take God at his word saying that you have to treat me as holy. This was just the first of some of Aaron's failures. This was his big low, but there were more, including some with his family. God continues to pursue his people. He doesn't just leave them there after that happens, um, although it took some convincing by Moses to not. And eventually Aaron's sons begin their work as priests. And on the first day, they completely do the same thing that Aaron did. They don't pay attention. They don't treat God as holy. They end up dying because of it. And it's a great sin before the people. They were supposed to be priests bringing people into God's presence. Eventually down the road, Aaron and his sister Miriam, who is his and Moses' sister, they're leaders of the Israelites. And eventually they get kind of upset with how much attention Moses is getting. And they speak negatively against Moses. And God rebukes them harshly because they are not treating God as holy and the choice that he has made as using Moses to help lead the people as holy either. And then finally, Moses and Aaron get sick of listening to Israel 
rebel and complain over and over again. And whenever they need water, miraculously again in the desert, God says, tells them, hey, command this rock to open up and water will come out. And instead, Moses and Aaron get mad and say, do you rebels want water? Hits the rock, water comes out. And God gets angry at them because they have now shown the people to be something that God said that he wasn't. A priest, an intermediary like Aaron, like Moses, is supposed to walk in the step with God and bring his people into God's presence. There were many failures that Aaron had. Those are just four or five of them. And yet, Aaron did not get left behind by God. In fact, God kept using him. He continued to be the high priest, the priest that was in charge of all the priests. And the first one, God defended him whenever there was a rebellion amongst the people and said, no, Aaron's my guy. I'm still going to use Aaron, even though he's sinned against me. And he does so, so much that Aaron's staff, the same one that he was using to uh, come alongside God with the plagues and to bring water and, and food for them in the desert, he places it in what was called the Ark of the Covenant, which is the place where God's presence would come into that tent, that tabernacle that we read about, in order for the people to be with God. God used Aaron mightily, even though he failed in multiple things. God wants to be with his people, and he wants to be with broken people, because there's no one who is not. Have there, have there been times in your life or even maybe this past year where for whatever reason you feel like you failed at something or, or things aren't going your way or, or you feel like you can't please God in some capacity that you, you feel like there's no way I can come into his presence? I know I felt that. I felt that a ton. I feel that on a fairly regular basis. But the story of Aaron lets us see that, man, he screwed up. Like, I haven't built a calf that had people worship them instead of God. God still wants to use broken people. Whenever I first started following Christ, it was the very end of my freshman year of college. I came back my sophomore year, and I was like, man, I want to live a holy life before God. I want to be an example in the fraternity house that I was living in for Christ. And the first month, I failed over and over and over again. I partied a lot beforehand. I was supposed to be walking with God. I fell back into it like that first month. I hid from the people who were also believers who were trying to walk with God because I thought they were gonna be ashamed of me. But God wanted to be with me, even though I was broken. And over the course of a year of failing a lot, God still allowed the gospel to go out with me and a group of my friends. And there were believers that got multiplied in our house because of that. And it wasn't because of me, because I was messing up as much as Aaron was. But isn't that the point of the gospel, of what God's doing in the world to bring a people to himself? It's that we can't do it. Left up to ourselves, we will continue to fail and be broken. And Aaron is supposed to be the model of the one who walked perfectly with God to bring people into his presence. Obviously couldn't, and neither can we. God wants to be with his people. He wants to be with broken people. But how? How does that play out with Aaron? How does that play out in our lives? If we look at Aaron's last scene, it's Aaron's legacy. 
Aaron's legacy, after 40 years of serving alongside Moses with God, bringing the people into his presence, even amongst his failures, we read this towards the end of the book of Numbers. Aaron died there on top of the mountain, and Moses and Eleazar, who was another priest, came down from the mountain, and when the whole community learned that Aaron had died, the Israelites mourned for 30 days for him. Even though Aaron had these failures, he continued to repent and be faithful to God, and he left a legacy amongst the people. They mourned him for a month because he was their spiritual leader. But that wasn't the only legacy that he left. See, Aaron was the first of many priests to come. God establishes an order of priests from Aaron and this tribe of Levi that he comes from in order to, for there to be a way that people can continue coming into God's presence for years and years and years to come. And it all points back to Aaron and how he began that work. And over the course of time, the priests, they don't do it perfectly, obviously, but eventually they become fairly corrupt. And Israel itself, God's people, becomes fairly corrupt. So by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, most people don't speak very kindly of Israel, who are supposed to be God's people. We read this in Malachi. Malachi is at the very end of the Old Testament, and he's a prophet. And he says this on behalf of God to the people. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, but he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and the people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned away from the way by which your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, that's where Aaron came from, says the Lord. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, and you have shown partiality in the matters of the law. The priests are a failure, basically. They aren't doing their job at all, and God rebukes them. And now there's this problem of the people who are supposed to bring God into his presence because God wants to be with his people are not doing that at all, and his people don't even want to be with him. So what happens? A few hundred years after Malachi writes that, there's a Jew that shows up outside of Jerusalem. He's from the tribe of Judah, not Levi, like Aaron. And he starts behaving like a priest, doing priestly things. He also doesn't serve in the temple yet he is a priest. Jesus, by traditional standards, was not a priest. But traditional standards, they weren't getting the job done with the priest. Something had to be shaken up. God had to intervene in some way. And so God the Father declares Jesus as this anointed, this chosen one, this sent one, this one who is perfectly holy and consecrated, his son who is supposed to be a priest. And he lives a holy life with God. He forgives people's sins. He heals people. He teaches the law accurately and faithfully. And he brings, instead of people into God's presence, he takes God's presence to them without discretion, without prejudice. That's his role. And that is exactly what he does. And then whenever we get towards the end of the New Testament, we see just exactly how in depth he was acting as a priest. Look at Hebrews 9. But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, not a part of this creation. So he didn't come through the tent that Aaron and Moses and all those people built where God's presence dwelt. He came through the perfect one, the one that the tent was just an image of. 
And he did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves that the priest usually sacrificed, but he entered the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant would have been, where God's presence would have perfectly been in all of its fullness. He entered that place once for all by his own blood, thus attaining eternal redemption. Jesus acts as this high priest and he does it by his own sacrifice, not the sacrifice of other things. He takes on the curse of sin and death and he overcomes it with new life. And now he's sitting at the right hand of the father, interceding on our behalf as a priest. The author of Hebrews continues in chapter seven. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, talking about Aaron and his lineage. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus right now is permanently and perfectly interceding, being an intercessory on behalf of us before God because of his perfect sacrifice. That is what he accomplished on the cross. That's why whenever John the Baptist sees him walking towards him and says, look, behold, the Lamb of God, everybody would have lost their minds because the Lamb of God is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And that's what he did. And now literally as we speak, Jesus is in heaven before God's throne in his perfect presence. And he is continuing to work to bring a people to himself. And he does so not by bringing people into the presence of God, but by giving us God's presence through the Spirit. And we receive that by believing this is exactly who Jesus is. And in fact, because this is true, because he's God, because he's this priest, then this changes everything. I get to live and dwell in God's presence. I'll turn my affections towards him and experience what Paul, the apostle, refers to as the beginnings of, of this new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, God's plan from the beginning, from Genesis to Abraham to Moses and Aaron to the end of the New Testament. God's purpose in the world is to bring people into his presence so that we can dwell with him and that his glory would be made known forever. And if this is the first time that you've heard that before, or maybe you've heard that and this is the first time that you're like, wait a second, this is a thread that has been woven all the way through the Bible, all the way from the beginning to the end, I would challenge you, consider, do you fall into that belief? Could you say that I am God's people and that he is with me in his spirit? And if not, begin following him today. Repent of that old way of living and follow the perfect human that Jesus is, was, and continues to be in his divinity alongside God. God wants to be with his people, and now he will be with his people forever. And if you are in that people group now, if you are part of this, this new covenant, this new thing that Jesus is doing, I want you to believe this, because this is what's true about us. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. Remember when God told Israel that he wanted them to be a kingdom of priests? Well, now we are all kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you were a follower of Jesus in here, that is what is true of you. And there's implications for that. If we are the kingdom of priests, if we are this royal priesthood, it is our role to bring God's presence to people in our lives. Maybe that's a friend that you live with or somebody from back home that you haven't talked to for a while. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe you're in a, you're in a space where God is burdening your heart like he did in Nebraska's for people who don't have anybody like Aaron or Moses or anybody who's ever followed Jesus to tell them about him. And it's up to one of us to go tell them. We are a kingdom of priests, no matter our failures, because Jesus is our high priest. And we are completely under his sacrifice. This also means that we get to trust God because he has gone to great lengths to save us. I want you to think about, just over the rest of tonight, if you were a follower of Jesus, how you ended up becoming a follower of Jesus. You might feel like you have a more tame story, not like Nebraska or the people on the volcanic island that he's at. But you came to Christ because somebody told you about Jesus. Somebody taught you about God. Think about how did they come to Jesus? And how did, how did that person come to Jesus? And it, how far back could I trace this thing? Because there's a lot of people that were faithful to being a kingdom of priests that got you here. That's awesome. God went to great lengths to make you his people. And finally, if you are in this royal priesthood, the gospel is good news for us because we're deficient. And so as you live as these kingdom of priests and you feel those failures, you feel those, those deficiencies, like, oh my gosh, I... I can't believe I did that again, or I feel like I'm not doing this again. Know that that's the point. That's the point of Aaron's life. That's the point of the priesthood, to show that even this specific people group that was made to be the model human, to bring people into God's presence, they couldn't do it. Nobody could. And that's why Jesus's priesthood gets applied to us. So let the fact that, yes, I feel those things in life whenever it's hard or feels like I failed to bring you back in to the presence of God. We get to come boldly before God's throne in prayer because Jesus is there interceding for us. The life of Aaron is a narrative that plays such a significant role in the whole narrative of scripture that it goes all the way through our lives to the very end of what God is doing. And we, that's the movie, that's the story, that's the poem, that's the narrative that we get to live in. We are in the story of Aaron. I would challenge you, think about your life like that. You are a part of a massive narrative of something bigger than most of the time we can ever even imagine going on. Let that fuel even the monotony of day-to-day -day life because the life of Aaron is a signpost to what Jesus has done and what he's doing for us and through us. Imagine if that is the story that we believed on a daily basis as we went about our lives. Let me pray for us. God, you've done so much to bring us as your people and 
all of the saints who have gone before us into your presence and you've sacrificed everything in order for that to happen. God, I pray that we would be overwhelmed by that to the point of repenting, if we need to repent of something now, repenting for the first time to follow you, and just believing this goodness that you have for us as the high priest that you are, Jesus. God, we thank you that you are serving us in that way and that you bring us this life that we were supposed to experience now, even in the midst of our failure, because you want to be with your people. We praise you for that. Amen.